0: Welcome everybody to this the hey well, what episode of this Uh eighteen nineteen forty seven sixty
1: three one of those okay so welcome to the latest episode of the Culture Caucus the Bloomberg Politics podcast. On the intersection of politics and culture, I am John Heilman, and I am deeply honored as Will Leach to be here in the room with John Heilman. Yeah, so we're sitting in Bloomberg. Here mm. we are at the Bloomberg headquarters at the Borg. We're sitting <laughs> in a radio studio. This is like comfortable. And yeah, it's nice. Will's wearing a jacket and like a button-down shirt and a pair of gray slacks. He looks. He's in his baseball broadcaster's outfit. If, <laughs> exactly. if you had his, if you had your your, your your aviator sunglasses on, you'd be like Joe Biden. Hello, sports fans. Okay, and we're here to talk about. Politics and culture, but in particular, we're going to talk about late night TV, comedy, politics, because it's like really back upon us. Saturday Night Live is back on the air, making waves, making laughs, doing all kinds of stuff. And of course, the campaign has reached this kind of like almost terminal place of (laughs) lunacy and absurdity and poke fun ability at it ability or whatever the right like way you mockability say mockability oh good thank god i have a writer in the room with me <laughs> yeah. i was a writer once i remember you were one. i was a writer once i used to do that um so we're going to talk about snl and we're going to talk about maybe about even some other late night comedy and the kind of profusion of late night comedy and it's with all the political grist that's getting chewed up by those various mills and then we're going to have morion who is variety's television critic and she uh, I you know when you think about there's a lot of smart people writing mm-hmm. about TV. There's James Panowacz, right, mm-hmm. at the New York Times. Mm-hmm. He's good. Alan Sepinwall, mm-hmm. you really like, right? There's some good TV writers out there in the world. Of course, Emily em, Nussbaum. Em, Emily Nussbaum great. A Pulitzer Prize winning Emily yeah. Nussbaum. Matt Zoller Seitz and New York Magazine. Oh my God, so many good are, ones. A lot of good TV. As TV has gotten so good, TV has gotten good, right? Yeah. We agree, right? Oh, TV's yeah. great. So as TV has gotten really good, a lot of really great writers have become, have kind of risen up to meet the moment. I think that's a whole, that'd be a whole other podcast we could talk about that. Because the truth is, it used to be if you wanted to write about images in a smart way, you became a film critic. And th- there was a boom of that in
0: the Ebert, Siskel, oh Coffin God. days. Yeah, and, the, yeah. and, the,
1: and the, you know, the rise of the auteur theory yeah. and all that shit. Now, you've got a lot of really smart people who are like, fuck movies, man. I want to yeah. write about TV. And Mo Ryan is... I maybe the best, but if not the best, one of the best. Certainly, yeah. like in the no pantheon question. of the people we just mentioned, she's great. She'll be on the podcast a little later. So, Will, the question I want to ask you is this: um, Saturday Night Live mm. starts up again in the fall. Every fall, yeah. Saturday Night Live starts up again, but every four years, it's special because politics is in full swing in these years when we have presidential election. Everybody, you know, remembers the famous SNL. Political moments, you know, most early on, Chevy Chase playing Gerald Ford stumbling out of the plane. Uh, Later on, you know, uh, John Lovett's playing Mike Dukakis. Can't Um, believe I'm losing to uh, this guy. Right. Hilarious. Like, classic (laughs) moment, right? Dana Carvey as George Herbert Walker Bush was incredible. So good that,
0: like, so good that people did, when they did an impression of George H.W. Bush, they were actually doing an impression of Dana Carvey doing an impression. Well, they they were really doing the church ladies that they were doing most of the time,
1: right? And then you, you know, obviously, (laughs) I mean, Will Ferrell Mm. as W. I mean, like, for the ages, right? Right, right? And now we have a new cast doing they never really got Obama right. I don't think Jay Farrow, yeah. I don't think anybody's ever really gotten Obama. Obama's hard. Yeah. But we got now in a glorious piece of stunt casting, we've now have Alec Baldwin doing Donald Trump. But before we discuss that, I'm going to ask you a question. Just remind everybody you can find this podcast where? You
0: can find this, of course, in your ears, this exact uh, yeah, second. As you're also, listening. Hi. Also,
1: uh, on BloombergPolitics.com.
0: Make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and give us a nice review. Why are That's the best place to find us. Also on SoundCloud. But subscribe to us on iTunes, give us a review, Helps people find the show, and we're happy to be able to have people say nice things about us.
1: Okay, so that first cold open the, of the season premiere that had Baldwin playing Trump in the first debate... It's one of the most retweeted thing. I tw- I yeah. embedded that thing in my Twitter feed. I sent it out. People went nuts, and I thought I like I figured everyone would already seen it, but people went nuts, watched it a million times. What did you think of Baldwin as Trump?
0: I I you know Trump is so hard because I did a ranking for Bloomberg Politics of all the different people that have done Trump, and I actually had Baldwin second on that. I think he's really good. Because who
1: was number one? I don't even see this piece. Well, who I, was number one?
0: I thought number one. We'll get to that in a second because okay, I want right. to talk about Baldwin first. To me, the best thing about Baldwin was. Uh, I, it is a little. It's uh, dialed up pretty high, as you'd almost feel like it has to be. Yeah. But there's a grotesquerie he's found in him that, like the Trump uh, Baldwin does this weird thing where he like slightly closes his left eye, almost like a gargoyle, <laughs> which is not something that Trump actually does. does. No, not at all. <laughs> but but it it it's gotten. It's made him feel like honestly like a gargoyle sitting on the steps on, on a on a, a perch above the steps of an old museum or something. He's made him like just weird and and they've overdone the orange makeup a little bit and they've made him like this kind of the b- the one I had the best one was Phil Hartman, and the reason I thought Phil Hartman was the best, because that was back, you know, when I did the rankings. A lot of people said, "Oh, why didn't you have Donald Trump in the rankings?" Because he's doing this impression of himself in a lot of right. ways. And yeah. to me, that's what's so great
1: about God, Phil. You Hartman. have some really smart commenters. That's a <laughs> that's a really super meta thing to say. Why didn't you put Donald Trump on the yeah. list of Donald Trump imitators? Yeah. Because he is, because he's playing smart that character. Ass. But the thing that's yeah. great
0: about Phil Hartman is his impersonation was actually before all of that. Yeah. Really before Trump became back when he was just this New York tabloid staple. And what's great about it is he actually the thing that Hartman Hartman does really well, and I think I think that uh, Baldwin, while still uh, uh, still going over the top with it more than the Harman did, Harman gets the coldness of Trump right. Like really, most of his impersonations of him were, were about the Ivanka divorce stuff but right. basically the right. Hartman he is actually a real person like he basically is just like a real person with an accent but really what he gets is kind of the dead-eyed like this is about me and I'm the only one that I that the, the cares about and I'm gonna win no matter what it's almost you can almost see Trump watching that impersonation be like oh I'm gonna be like that guy right. like that's actually I, I I that'd be the one impression you can imagine him being very happy with other than the fact that Trump would just be happy that anyone's impersonating him at all um, but the thing I the thing that works about the Baldwin is the the Trump that we see now you're seeing him increasingly as a less comical character as this election drags on and on and on and I think Baldwin Wilde certainly doing a broad impersonation there's something just manifestly ugly and kind of like gnarled almost about his Trump that I think kind of does work for this little moment
1: right the gargoyle thing is clear and I and I thought you know the cold open that that debate cold open was brilliant the the thing that they did last week after the release of the access Hollywood access Hollywood yeah access Hollywood tapes the Billy Bush tapes we'll call them the bush tapes um, was in some ways more more powerful in some way I thought just because obviously the moment you know called for it and the thing about it of course that and this is a compl- complex thing to discuss I think first of all part of the reason to you're, you you use the word gargoyle part of the reason I think why Alex uh, Alec Baldwin's Imitation is very good, is because it channels just the main thing about Trump. What's the main thing? The main thing is unfathomable narcissism. Right. And it just the level, the size of the ego is so huge as to kind of be, you know, hard to comprehend and grotesque, right? right? I and mean, it's literally is,
0: driven our entire national conversation. Right. And, the tr- a year and, a half. and
1: the truth is that... Alec Baldwin, who's a brilliant actor, and I I think he's a brilliant comic actor, I think he's been a brilliant dramatic actor, I'm a huge fan of Alec Baldwin, I have sat in coffee shops in Amagansett with Alec Baldwin, but he is also an egomaniacal narcissist of a high, high order. So he's tapping into something that's really part of his own character. And then, you know, Alec Baldwin has had a complicated relationship past, according to the tabloids at least, with some of the women in his life. Nothing like what Trump has suggested. No one's accused Alec Baldwin, I believe, of sexual assault, but- as Trump suggested he had himself partaken of or engaged in. But he's had a complicated life, and and we know he's a volcanic guy, and he's had complicated relationships with women. And I actually think part of the charge of seeing Baldwin play Trump is not just technique, but is that – There's something actually kind of Trumpy about Baldwin, and Baldwin, if he hears this, will come and punch me because, (laughs) I mean, I'm not trying to say Baldwin. Which I think speaks to what you're talking about. Right. I'm not trying to say Baldwin's, like, dumb, right, or that he's intellectually – Baldwin's obviously a really smart guy. But I just mean there are certain characteristics that are are key to Trump that Baldwin possesses a version of, and he is openly, nakedly – um, transparently tapping into that and into not the subtext, but the supertext sort of of, oh, this is Alec Baldwin, yeah. you know, playing Donald right. Trump. And they're both famous New Yorkers. There's just a lot, you know, yeah. there's a lot going on. There's with no that. way
0: there's not been like dozens of parties that they've been. right at
1: Yes, of course. Right. Totally. And so that's part of the thing. Of when you see it, I mean, if he wasn't good at doing it, at executing right. it, it would fall flat. But the combination of technique and then all that other stuff that you bring into watching it as a viewer, it makes it really, really, really great, I think, and really it just kind of makes you, oh, wow, man, this is like I'm, this is a, I'm seeing something here.
0: Yeah, and you know, you've since you know, when Trump hosted last year, of course, he had to Daryl Hammond and then their, uh, the other Trump impersonator that they had on the show uh, up stage with him, and they both looked kind of dumb, like they both looked kind of right, dumb because they they right. were impressions, right? Yes, rather than than uh, I wouldn't even say more than a caricature. Sure of what Trump, what Baldwin's doing, but it's a strong angle at it. Yeah. And it's, it's frankly, you know, it's certainly less uh, kind uh, than Kate McKinnon's Clinton right. is, but certainly seems to capture something about the person that the person doing the impersonation understands right. about themselves
1: when they yeah. do it. It's interesting, you know, and part of the thing, <laughs> having had like a little bit of experience around this, you know, with, uh, with game change is that Tina Fey was brilliant as Palin, but it was also totally an imitation, right? It was not... There was no... This this level of subtext and supertext was not happening with right. her. She did a a, a hilarious, spot-on kind of imitation of Palin and captured her dinginess and her. Which
0: is one of the great things about that too is that Tina Fey A was not the show at the time, but B never really did impressions. Right. So it was really funny. Like the audience just kind of cast her. Yes. But so for her to come up like really in the span of like five days right. to come up with this angle on her right. was I always thought it was like almost like kind of alchemy.
1: Right. And yet, and not in and yet. Yes, a hundred percent. And yet, like when we were talking about casting the Game Change movie, when nobody wanted to do Tina Fey, both right, right. because for two reasons. One was too obvious. Actually, three reasons. One reason too obvious. Second reason, like you, it would could net you couldn't move it from 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 parody and sketch right. comedy to the deeper, richer thing that. Uh, that whoever played Palin would have to do in the movie. And also that Tina Fey is not really a thespian in that way. She's a brilliant kind of comic actress, yeah. but you needed somebody. She's not quite right for it. So there were a bunch of things you wanted to get Fey out of your, everyone would bring all their right. Fey memories to right. it. Right. Again, I'm always into like how viewers, what they bring to the mm-hmm. party. Cause they're as much a part of the experience as the person's performance. Right. So, we, looked for Moore. we didn't look for Julianne Moore. We don't look for Julianne Moore. We look for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And and, admit, and the initial thing with Julianne was well, she doesn't really look like Palin. And then, you know, you did like a little PowerPoint mock-up. You're like, okay, well, that might work. And then she was obviously great. So interestingly to me, you know, if, if someone makes a movie about this campaign, you know, the question of who will be cast as Trump is an interesting question. And I think Baldwin's performance – is great, but again, a little too broad, a little mm-hmm. too cartoony, and again, now it's leaving such an impression that you won't want him. I was sitting in a green room a couple days ago with Brian Cranston, mm-hmm. and he wants to play Trump, like openly is pining to play Trump, play Trump. I believe has publicly said this, and I asked him to do some Trump for me, like to right. I'd like to do it not in a, it, it not. Just to see if he had the thing. He's not a big guy, right? But, right, right. And he he played, but he played LBJ effectively. Yeah. So, and I watched Cranston do about ten minutes of Trump. Fucking brilliant. Yeah. I mean, fucking brilliant. He was doing these things with his hands and that was like actorly and it made me again no diss on Alec Baldwin who is a great actor but I'm watching Cranston going oh you could play this part Yeah, was, and me- there will be a lot of actors who are who are going to be want to be in that running
0: yeah it reminds me a little of it's funny two things on that one we talked about the impersonation like one of the biggest mistakes the movie The Late Shift made remember that one about the Letterman Leno stuff was they cast Rich Little as Johnny Carson oh, and it was so stupid oh, like horrible. Johnny Carson needs to be like a big like he's the guiding force for everyone well and he's you, a really complicated human yeah, being yeah you and you don't want to fucking just give this Dumb you know, like impression, a, an impressionist yeah, doing it. It was stupid, just a very I mean. because I thought the actors that played Letterman and Leno actually gave it, brought a lot to it and did the best. But they did, all their scenes with Carson were in, in a vacuum. But to me, the second party is physical uh, similarity to the to the people by the actors is really not important. I think the best. Probably the best two impersonations, the best two performances I ever saw is like say, Nixon, Philip Baker Hall in Secret and Secret Honor, which is uh, the Robert Altman movie, and really Anthony Hopkins. Oh my in Nixon God, in the Stone movie, is incredible. so good. So yes. he looks zilch. Nothing like him, like nothing Nixon. Like him. But he gets into, like he digs down deep into there. It doesn't matter that he doesn't look like Nixon because that's Nixon.
1: Yeah, I, you know, Langella in in uh, Frost Nixon yeah. was pretty incredible. Also, again, guy who looks nothing like Richard yeah. Nixon it had nothing to do with, uh, it didn't look like him at all.
0: So, whereas just, Kevin Spacey, by the way, in the new movie Elvis and Nixon with yeah, uh, with Michael Chan, it's not good because right. Kevin Spacey, who is a really charming actor, yeah. is doing a parlor impersonation yeah. of Nixon.
1: All right, so I want to like, like so we've been talking, we got a little as usual, we digressed a little bit, and and we got to get to Mo Ryan, but I want to I want to just loop back on one thing, which is to to, to have a little bit because I know we're going to talk about this with Mo as like a slightly broader thing about what's happening in the world of late night comedy. Obviously, Saturday Night Live matters a lot; people pay attention to it, got a really huge audience, and because of its topicality and because they do it on the fly. You know they can land some things sometimes when, especially when the timing is right. It's also the case that there is this big, broad world now of late night comedy. You know that was always there's always been this world. Doesn't it's not new, but it's way more political now than ever, right? So you've got people like Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, who no one thinks is being particularly political, but who are now you know infusing politics in various ways into their shows. You've got Colbert. Who is um, you know, Colbert yeah. and is trying to make his show make that a staple, part of his brand, not to completely be the old Colbert show, but he wants right. elements of that it's, in there. A lot of that's come back. Yes, it's yeah. come back. Much yes, much more than people thought when he yeah. first went there. I was like, Oh, I'm not gonna
0: do anything. And much more yeah, he was very clear about that. Yes, and I think and he's now recognized. He's, right. Yeah,
1: that it's a big it's a strength for him and an interest and a passion, yeah. and, and some it's been very good, I think. But I'm interested in what you think of the, what, to me, one of the defining features of 2016, which is the collapse of the Comedy Central late night franchise, because I think part of the reason why SNL can, is, is, is it's like everyone's kind of glad it's back and why people are looking to Colbert and to other, you know, other uh, forums in the late night p- space is that the thing that everybody watched in the last few presidential cycles of the entire of the, the 21st century there was not a presidential cycle that was not basically everyone you knew watching at a minimum, Stewart every night, yeah. but often Stewart and Colbert every night. And they were an integral part of the fabric of how we understood elections. They were part of how we laughed at them, but also how we commented on them. And people found some people found their news there, whatever. But they were integral, right? Integral. People stopped watching a lot of other things to watch those shows if you were remotely interested in politics. So now here we have the most incredible presidential election, or at least the most kind of hallucinatory and <laughs> crazy. Yes. And you've got just a big void there. Yeah. Larry Wilmore is gone yeah. already. Didn't make it through right. more than really a year, I guess. And you got Trevor Noah, who, you know, the show is sometimes good, sometimes not that good, but it's not like anything, right. like an integral part of our political conversation. So what do you think... I, if, first of all, do you agree with me about the collapse? And second of all, if you agree about the collapse, what do you think the fallout has been about in, in terms of its absence? I think, I think
0: that if anyone... I think there's definitely, there's been a a clear issue there at Comedy Central. But I think part of the problem, there have been two problems. One is they've lost a lot of talent. Maybe they should have given that show to Samantha Bee, or they should have given that show to, John Oliver was a matter of timing. I think if John Oliver had not left for HBO, he would have gotten that job.
1: Yes, well, they were clearly kind of And and
0: I I wonder, I wonder in an alternate universe where Stewart knows, he tells Oliver, I'm going to retire at this time. Oliver stays long and gets that show. The Daily Show has been that been like this every day with John Oliver the entire time. And it feels like it hasn't missed a beat. Right. So cause I feel yes. like a lot of what people get out of John Stewart, they're getting out of John Oliver uh, specifically, but also right. Samantha B yep. and some other people. Yep. But I also, but I think it gets lost a little bit that the time that Stewart retired, uh, it was, people were getting a little tired of that show. Yes. And one of the reasons they were getting tired of that show is it felt like people were almost getting, like the show was starting to feel like it was being less about comedy and more about advocacy. Right. And which I think Stewart would be the first to admit and I think was one of the reasons why he felt kind of comfortable stepping away thinking I'm, now I'm just banging my head against the wall. It's, it's I'm not doing a comedy show anymore. I'm doing alternate programming to Fox News. Right. So I think that he felt that way. The problem was like the rest of us, he didn't know that Trump was coming and, and, (laughs) and like we didn't, and he didn't. And I think if, I think that's why that collapse is, it's not so much that Trevor Noah is untalented. It's not so much that, but the moment that they, the reason they brought in Noah was one, obviously to have a a, a more, not only multicultural, but more international kind of flavor to the show. But also they understood like Stewart did, that people were getting a little tired of a show that felt more about the advocacy than a comedy. Let's have a more younger warm Jimmy Fallon-esque comedy show, which might have worked if this were Jeb Bush against Hillary Clinton. Right. Like, that might have actually worked. But the Trump moment, like, would let have been retired if right. he would have known that right. Trump was coming I this know. year. I so I feel like the reason it feels like that moment has a matched is a, because our regular voices like Stewart and Letterman are gone. But B, the reason they're gone is because it did feel like that. The juice was getting they squeezed out. We of were
1: going to have a Hillary Clinton, Jeb Bush yes. president. And they're like, I can't do another Who fucking piece? wants to cover but, that shit. Exactly. Like, so uh, then
0: Trump happens. And right. so the, I think to us, we feel that we're used to having a Stewart there yeah. and a Letterman there and, yeah. and, and, or an old Colbert there. Yeah. And, because they didn't know this was coming. And yeah. So I feel like people have come in and, and, and filled the void. But I do think it is forgotten that at the end of Stewart's run, people are
1: like, yeah, you know what? It's probably time. All right. All right. So uh, I think it's time for us to take a break. I will say just two additional things before we take this break. One is that um, I believe that we agree, and we will talk to Mo Ryan about this, but I think we agree that Samantha B has really, like, mm-hmm. you know, every show takes a little while to get its feet. But she is on fire right now. And she, I think, you know, it's particularly given the nature of this moment, the things that are in the air, the things that we're talking about, the depredations of Donald Trump, it's really essential that there be some woman who is doing the kind of comedy that she's doing and she is doing it and doing it very well. And the timing, she had enough time to get the kinks out of her show. She has some very talented people working there, a couple of whom have worked previously at Bloomberg Politics, in fact. And she, she's really at the, just the right moment. She's really hit her stride and she's just kicking ass and taking. Yeah. She's meeting the moment. Yes, she's totally. Moment. 100%. Um, so we'll talk about that with Mo. Uh, the other thing I always want to say is, uh, uh, Will, um, it's a post baseball postseason mm-hmm. without the Cardinals. It's true. How are you feeling about that?
0: Well, you know, uh, listen, my I have to keep remembering that my son loves the swing and does not want to get off the swing. But the fact is, even though you are, in fact, he's great on the swing and may belong on the swing. Yeah. Everybody has to get a turn as much yeah. as I would love to. Everybody <laughs> gets, a sw- get, gets a swing on a uh, turn in the swing. So uh, I will confess I'm having a much harder time with the Cardinals not being in the, in the postseason as I am with not only the Cubs continuing to win in the Cubs, in the right. postseason, but being everybody's favorite. I'll just want it this way.
1: Yeah, I know this is hard for you. 2004. This is hard.
0: 2004. For no one's gonna admit this now, but everybody, everybody that, that hated the Reds hates the Red Sox now and hates the Patriots and hates all that stuff now. They loved the 04 Red Sox. Right. You wait. You think Red Sox fans were bad? You wait to see what happens with the Cubs in the World they're, Series. They're you will. Reg- ins- all
1: of you will regret. They're gonna be insufferable, and they're, and they're gonna be, gonna be the worst. To, They're gonna try to be jamming like deep dish pizzas down your gullet. Like, you are talking day. to a Cardinals fan, to be fair. But I know. But <laughs> I, I, you know, I went to school in Chicago, and I like like Chicago. I'm not I'm not a Cubs right. fan. I'm, I'm interested. It would be kind of good, I think, for the game for them to make the World Series. And I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I don't have, you know, my teams, three teams that I, you know, my, my American League team, the Red Sox, out, um, very sad. Uh, Big Poppy, not making another World Series. I'm a little sad about that, but that was clearly not their year. The Giants... Um, now out, mm-hmm. uh, my my National League team, mm-hmm. um, uh, incredible victory by the Cubs uh, in the ninth inning. Pretty um, wild. Uh, in the ninth inning of their of their. It's game a problem four. for the Giants all year. And yeah, came no, fucking with closer, no fucking closer, no fucking closer, and of course the Mets, which is kind of like my New York team. that yeah. I'm kind of Understood. like meh about, and again, not that that team did not deserve to go further. So we're now, you know, uh, you know, uh, I'm I'm kind of like on the Cubs Cubs train, just to, at least to get to the World Series because I think it would be good for them to do that. And but I do have to say to you about mm-hmm. the fact the Cardinals aren't in the in the playoffs? okay <laughs> i
2: understand yeah, and with and with
1: that i say i'm john Heilman and you i'm i'm a recently uh, flubbed at yeah. will leach yeah that's what it is and we are doing the culture caucus bloomberg politics uh, politics and culture podcast Will, you can find this podcast where? On uh, BloombergPolitics.com, of course, and also
0: on iTunes, SoundCloud to give us a nice review on iTunes. I'll and you find the show.
1: And when we come back, we're going to be talking to Mo Ryan from Variety, and it's going to kick ass. She's the best. So we're back. Hey, Will, we're back. And you know what's great about being back? What's great about being back is that we get to stop talking to each other. We get to talk to another one of our fabulous, incredible, brilliant, wonderful guests. In this case, Maureen Ryan, who is the, I think, maybe the best television writer in America. You know, she made her name, I, I think, at least came to my attention when she was at the Huffington Post, where she was for how many years, Mo? Oh, five glorious years. Five glorious years. Cranking it out. Under in the Ariana Charnel House, and now has moved on to the more esteemed and and, and venerable and and, and high-impact world of Hollywood trade. She's the Variety TV critic par excellence. I know there are other TV critics of Variety, but you are the TV critic. I mean, the one.
2: Well, I like this intro. Yeah. Can you please continue? <laughs> yeah. yeah, You don't have to say
0: anything. We're just going to praise yeah. you for the
2: next 20 minutes. That would be great. I love this podcast. It's my favorite. I <laughs> listen to God. Awesome. It's the greatest. Okay, so here's
1: the thing. Okay, Will and I have been talking about SNL, and we're obsessed, as one is. And we've talked over the course of the life of this podcast about about late night uh, and the ups and downs of, of some of the late night programs, some of which are thriving, some of which are not thriving, but SNL coming back to... Uh, started its fall season in the midst of by far the most hallucinatory, crazy, distressing, appalling, uh, <laughs> incredible presidential campaign of any of our lifetimes. Just so you're the TV critic and you turn on your TV to watch the season premiere. And here comes Alec Baldwin doing his Trump. And you thought what?
2: I thought it was it, I mean, nothing could be stranger. I mean, in a weird way, you would almost think, why not have like any anyone in America play Trump because it's just like the, everything is so surreal right now that, that like any actor I'm sure would have been like you could have put I don't know um, Jennifer Lawrence <laughs> just everything is, seems to be designed to make things big and broad and kind of hallucinatory as you said I thought I mean I think I, I liked aspects of his performance and, and other aspects not so much I think the physicality I think there was a little bit like kind of too overly broad but I think he gets at something about the guy's ego that is important. But one of the things that is interesting to me, to sort of a longtime Saturday Night Live viewer, you know, I was watching it, you know, for decades, basically, since it began. And I think that it's interesting that they don't have someone in their cast who can do a Trump, you know, which is they they struggled for a long time to have someone who could do Obama. And that really kind of was their stock in trade. You know, obviously they had Tina Fey as a... As, uh, Sarah Palin, Um, but that was when she had a different job, like that it wasn't her day job. And so I think Saturday Night Live is kind of contending with a lot at this moment. It's a hugely strange election. I just don't think that there's ever been a weirder election in American history. I don't think, certainly not in my lifetime. There's a ton more competition in the late night arena and the comedy late night kind of wars are very, very red hot right now. And, you know, they do have a young cast, like a, a fairly, um, a lot of the cast members are new, and I think a number of them are great. One interesting thing is that they're really heavily reliant on their female talent at the moment, which has certainly not always been the case with Saturday Night Live. But then that leaves them kind of vulnerable to the point where they have to have in, you know, Alec Baldwin come in as Trump, which is kind of like a big, you know, it's kind of stunt casting, but I, I understand the reasons for it.
0: Yeah, I, I always think of when Saturday Night Live was really peaking um, on this political stuff. Particularly I really feel like 2008, when it felt like they were actually do, not only doing something amazing, because you, as you point out, Tina Fey was not actually on the show, but I think I remember seeing the interview with Lauren Michaels where he said, yeah, but the audience, like we actually, I think they had planned on someone else playing her, but the audience just sort of cast that role for them, and she turned out to be so perfect for that. But the thing about that was that felt... Cutting, and it felt like they were getting away with something. I remember that crazy moment three days before the before election day, when Tina Fey, literally with John McCain sitting right next to her, turns over and and kind of uh, undermines him and and runs with that, and she became the character. It felt like this high wire act that now. I wonder if part of the reason they were able to pull that off is because there weren't many other places to look. Like at the time, it felt like yeah. urgent and and important. And now it's like, well, yeah. By the time I get to Saturday Night, I've okay. I've seen I've seen so many people do this stuff.
2: I agree. I mean, there were a lot of articles I seem to recall around then. You know, is the is uh, Saturday Night Live going to change the course of the election? And you would even see some stuff like that around the time of the Daily Show um, in, in 2004 and 2008, you know, are they, is there not an undue influence, but like, is, is this become this massively influential thing that is sort of deciding, not deciding the course, but sort of directing where the conversation is going. And it's really interesting to see that the daily show is not really, I mean, to me, I could, I, I could be wrong, but it's not really as much in the conversation as say, Samantha B with Full Frontal uh, Saturday Night Live is still in the mix, but again, as you say, not really driving the conversation so much as reacting to it and trying to catch up to it in many ways. But you know, Samantha B is doing good stuff. Even Stephen Colbert has done some some interesting stuff and is trying to remain relevant with that sort of political content. Everyone's really throwing their hat into the ring. You even had Jimmy Fallon with kind of the opposite of what you want, which is. Getting a lot of uh negative press for not not making the most of a candidate appearance on a show, and in fact kind of seeming like uh, he he was again being reactive to the situation, not playing with it in a comedic way, just letting Trump burnish his reputation as you Know the eccentric un- uncle as opposed to like you know a terrifying dude, which is how many people regard him.
1: Yeah, you should also try to keep your hands out of Donald Trump's hair because you might never come back. Yeah, you might, yeah. if you when you, you when, you, what you're gonna when you tell well, or when you take your hand out, you might like realize you've lost a finger in there.
0: <laughs> is there something to the idea that these comedy shows are kind of reflecting what's going on in the media in general? In the notion that Saturday Live and I think Jimmy Fallon coming from that world. There is this kind of instinctive notion that they have that like, hey, we skewer all sides and we play it down the middle and we go after Hillary and we go after Trump. And whereas someone like Samantha Bee or John Oliver, of course, uh, John Stewart in his heyday, it was more aggressively partisan in a way that I think the audience wants more of now.
2: Yeah, I think that really this election has done a lot in its exposed, you know, uh, elements of racism in the society that we, I think, probably would have preferred not to talk about or think about, you know, those currents were already there, but it's brought that forward. Obviously, elements of sexism that, you know, we don't even need to go into. The last week has been a roller coaster in that regard. Um, But also, it's exposed in a really major way, the shortcomings of the media. And I can tell you from, from personal experience that You know writing about night one of the republican national convention one of my colleagues was writing about it and before she was even done writing that's when it sort of started to emerge that melania trump's speech was partly plagiarized so like it becomes overwhelming for either individuals or the media as a whole there's so much coming at people and you know it's been hard for people to keep up and to kind of keep a sense of proportion. But I do think you make a good point that the both sides is that kind of ruled, I think, comedy to some degree and the news media itself has been exposed. and now people are saying, I want a point of view. And I, I would argue that the reason that um, the Sarah Palin impression made a great w- was historic, uh, the Gerald Ford. Uh, impression going way back in Saturday that Live's history was great. Um, it was because those had a point of view, and they, there was a really strong framing to what they were doing with those characters, their, those interpretations of those politicians. And so I think if you go the gentle both sides route with your comedy, it can just lead to kind of averageness, honestly, and in a, in a competitive environment. That's not great. But I think, you know, there's just... That people do want more of an informed analysis or an informed point of view rather than just, isn't it all crazy? Right. I, I think that the things are too charged at the moment for that approach to really work on a you know ongoing basis. Yeah,
1: totally. There's a bunch of things to say, to unpack about the various things we've just talked about, so I'm going to try to unpack them and and we'll dig a little deeper on some of these things, right? First, you mentioned the that the, the female cast at Saturday Night Live is, is – particularly strong right now, uh, and they rely a lot on them. So just talk a little bit in the context of what you've just been saying and what we've just been saying. Talk a little bit about Kate McKinnon and her portrayal of Hillary Clinton and whether you think that—I mean, I I agree with you about Alec. I mean, he's he's savage towards Trump. It has a point of view, for sure, but it's, I think, a, a little bit undercut by the stunt casting quality of it right so
2: yeah there's something about how he sticks out his up is but lower lip that just to me is like it's too much right I mean, it's what, too think, broad think back to chevy chase he looked nothing, nothing like, <laughs> like yeah. right like the man he was imitating gerald ford but he there was something about the attitude i definitely think that uh there's no doubt to me that kate mckinnon is uh one of the standouts of the current cast of Saturday Night Live there's no doubt at all and I I definitely think that she has a take on Hillary Clinton. It's not just an imitation or an homage or a savage you know take it's, it's there's something very considered going on there that she she's able to convey that sense of frustration kind of lurking underneath Hillary Clinton right and whether or not you like her, I think that there's certainly the argument to be made that, she has every right to be frustrated. You know, she's being essentially, you know, imagine like a clown car full of terrifying clowns and that's who she's running against, you know? <laughs> I think, I think just, well,
1: to be honest, I think all clowns are terrifying. So that's, you that's,
2: know. That's true. Definitional. All, all. <laughs> it's, she, she's, she's got a really interesting, I think, subtle take on the character that makes it more funny because she's not really pushing it in your face. I think that's really one of the things, the, the maybe one of the aspects of the, Um, Alec Baldwin thing that I don't like is it's it's pretty broad whereas Kate McKinnon is very measured and considered and controlled and that's really often the dig at Hillary Clinton but she's able to show enough other elements of frustration and despair or even glee at times that you know to see those edges peek out is really funny the way that she does it Um, I don't know if this is something you wanted to talk about, but I would actually love to know what you think of weekend update. I, I just, I do think that the most recent update, um, you know, especially given everything that had gone on on Friday with the access Hollywood tape was, was pretty good. Yeah. But it's, it's been a patchy team it's for very. Me. I, I don't think, know. I agree, I agree, <laughs> what are the thoughts over there?
1: I agree with that. I think it's, I think it's sort of patchy and, and lacks, um, and lacks edge and knowingness. And, and in a funny way. you play to the it's interesting I think about all of this is that we live in this media stew right so part of the way in which we judge all of these things are it's in the context in which some of the people who've done things what they've done before and what they're doing now so I think part of the problem right now is that I think Seth Meyers is doing a pretty good job at his show, yeah. and being political, and being topical, and being smart, and so part of the reason why I think it's impossible to judge the current team without, to some extent, being like, "Well, that's not Seth Meyers," and I know what Seth Meyers is doing on another another screen at another time, so they kind of they they, they suffer by comparison. I'm not sure if that's yeah. fair, but it is something I think that happens in a lot of people's minds, where you're like, "Man, I really miss Seth. If only Seth was bringing the the high heat that he brings on his show over here on Saturday Night Live, it'd be so much better." I
0: think John Oliver has probably done a little bit of that, too. Yeah, totally. And, you know, totally. it's it, it, in a way, I've, I wonder if it's exposed that we can update format as like two, like even Seth Meyers segments are now running 10 or 11 minutes yeah, right. on one topic. And and Oliver will go 20, 25 minutes on something. Mm-hmm. So for them to do like these short, just a little quip and just a little here, haha, it doesn't feel appropriate. And also, frankly, they sometimes feel like a couple frat dudes yeah. on there, which I think is really not necessarily matching the moment either.
2: I agree with everything you said. But I would also just argue that it's a weak. It's a weak. The jokes are not that great. They're just not that funny. And I think that there is a whole like, well, everything's crazy. Hillary is equally crazy to Trump. What I just think that that's not really true. Honestly, and I think it it makes for. It's just the whole the whole the writing for Weekend Update to me is not the most incisive it could be. Right. Especially, I feel like this is giving comedy writers, like if it's not a feast for you right now, what are you even doing in this profession? Right, Right. I mean, false equivalence. It's giving you a lot of material, right?
1: False equivalence is bad as a general thing, and it's bad in journalism, but it's in some ways worse in comedy because there's a, you know, I mean, I don't mean to exempt my colleagues and myself from occasionally practicing false equivalence, but I do think in comedy, like if you don't have the point of view and you're not just like really like pounding it, It just Mm -hmm. it just becomes it becomes it will pablumy. You're rich little, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there has to be a
2: sense of proportion, you know. I think, absolute is Hillary Clinton a flawed politician? Absolutely. Could I? Could we sit here and talk for an hour about what things she could have done better? Easily, could go two or three. That's not like every politician has their flaws and their, their problems. But this is like, normal you know not you know politician with normal politician problems or maybe you know more than most because she's been in the public eye for longer than most versus like Gamera trying to destroy the city (laughs) there's if you don't have a sense of proportion about your comedy I mean I think a lot of good comedy is driven by a sense of injustice or a sense of anger something really animating and i really think that that's where your frat boy comment kind of to me strikes home because it does not feel like this is something that they take all that personally or have strong feelings about it just seems like well some stuff happened what's up buddy you know it's, yeah. it doesn't it it, it just yeah. you know you look across Any other late night show, and there's more of a sense of urgency in most of them. There's more of a sense of pointedness. I mean, if I'm over on CBS and watching Stephen Colbert on one of the most widely watched mainstream late night shows, making, you know, doing a normal intro routine to his nightly show, but with some savage jokes in there, um, that to me like feels off. If Saturday Night Live is not quite up in that league at that at this moment
0: kind of the last things I, I know I've got to go. We've, when you kind of, t- we talk about like those, the kind of the frat guys on, on weekend update to me, that speaks to, if there's been one star I think has emerged uh, from this season, it's probably been Samantha B. Bee.
2: I think so. Absolutely. And she, absolutely. the thing that people, you know, I would, I, I hope that she doesn't get sort of dismissed as, well, she's just angry, you know, or she's just ranting. I think that that to me, what she brought over from the daily show is a really strong frame. You know, The Daily Show was absolutely brilliant at finding the perfect clip or the perfect quote. They had a thesis to make and they defended it with facts. Like that's really ultimately what makes for good journalism. Not just you have um, a through line to your article or your your video or whatever, but you're supporting it. You're making an argument, you're making a case. The Daily Show did that really well and I think that's what she has uh, so much of is the idea that we've done some digging, we've got a point of view, we've got a reason that you should, you know, not like this one politician. Here's, here, here's all the research we did on his actual positions, things he's done and said there's something there to me that feels very substantial behind, like that's her shtick. She certainly gets a lot of mileage out of that energy of just kind of like being like, what is going on? And the, I love it. I mean, the way that she plays it, it's actually really entertaining, but there's, there's something behind it. And I think that that's why she's made a huge impression.
1: Yeah. I think though, that I'll just say that. I think that like, I, I agree with you. It would be unfortunate. First of all, love Samantha B. Second of all, um, I think it, it, it's true that it would be unfortunate if it was dismissed as she's just angry. But again, right. speaking just for myself, I, I think that the 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 feminine feminine slash feminist rage is actually part of her strength. And and oh, yeah. and while I while I would wouldn't want to just be oh she's an angry woman, but you know to to to, to in any way move away from acknowledging that that so much the power of it. I mean, when she did her thing the other night um, on Monday, I believe. Uh, when she did her vagina monologue. Um, it was just killer. And the whole, that actually that whole show is killer. Everything she did that night in the wake of the Access Hollywood tapes was just fantastic and funny, right. funny, And didn't mean, you see people on
2: social media saying, I can't wait to see what Sam B is going to do.
1: Right. I mean, I, and, and that, I again, to make the obvious point, the reason it was so great was that it was both, it was funny, angry, um, pointed, uh, but also it was a woman's point of view and she is the strongest female voice out there mm-hmm. right now and, and it there's made, a lot to be angry about yes and <laughs> a lot to be angry about especially in this moment and i would just say you know it made me think something i've thought for now for a year watching i will say i don't know how you feel mo about these two people but watching larry wilmore fail and i i think he failed and watching trevor noah fail and he's not yet failed he's not yet been fired but i think they both you know have been a giant step down from their predecessors and you know, the, the, obviously, the Comedy Central franchise wanted to look at diversity. They decided to look at diversity in a certain way. Again, legitimate choice, legitimate choices. But you kind of looked at both. You look at their, at what I think is their fail, their joint failure, and say to yourself, "Man, like Sam B would have been a pretty good choice for that gig. Like, kind of mistake <laughs> right. not to keep her there."
2: Yeah, no, I, no doubt. I mean, I think what's great about right now, just to link it to sort of my broader job as a TV critic you know according to various statistics there are going to be 430 scripted shows this year so you have to stand out you have to have that difference and it can't just be a gimmicky difference there has to be something to it you know and i think that that's one of the great things about right now is that samantha b is getting a no holds barred platform to do her particular take and that's really smart and i that's you know she's not watering it down to be some other version of of her her point of view. And I think that's one of the reasons it's succeeding in a very, very crowded media landscape. As far as The Daily Show, I've had a problem with um, uh, Trevor Noah from the start. I think he does uh, a collection of medium stand-up jokes, but that is not what The Daily Show is known for. As we were saying before, it's got, it's it, when it's good, when it's on fire, it's got this really strong narrative frame and point of view. And even if you disagreed with it, it gave you something to fight against. Whereas I don't find that with Noah. I would argue though, this is my stealth take on the daily show that I need to write up at some point. There's a really funny guy on the daily show right now and his name is Roy Wood Jr. I, every time he's on, he cracks me up. I mean, they have, a, they have actually a pretty good stable of correspondence at the moment who far outshine Trevor Noah at the moment who just right. has a very... Um, amiable presence. And boy, you know, I, I understand that some people want that. That's one reason Fallon is popular, but I just don't think it works for that show. Yeah, it feels and more I would like callow. to see someone else in their stable now, just promoted.
1: Right. He's, he's. I think, his biggest problem is that, and this is not, is that he's just not smart enough about American politics. And, and he's not that interested in politics. And like the crazy thing, I know some people who work on that show, and I've been on the show with Trevor. Nice guy. But I think, you know, he did not, he did not come into that job expecting that he was going to find himself in the middle of not just a presidential election, but But this this particular (laughs) presidential election. And his lack of knowledge about American politics, again, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to say, like, he's not, you know, this Mm -hmm. was an election that called for someone who was really well-versed in American politics and had a really strong point of view. And he might actually be an okay host of The Daily Show when we get past this election. But in this election context, when people are looking for sophistication, savvy, and a really strong point of view he didn't bring any of those things not through you know he's not an american you know but he didn't bring yeah. any of those things to the job and i think he was just ill equipped for this moment
2: i think i think that's a good point
1: awesome i got I just got more ryan to say i made a good point <laughs> i know that. Oh, yeah, fantastic. Fantastic. you got a good review wow man. i feel like i feel like it's probably this is like the moment to say goodbye so just <laughs> oh, just, just i gave her an incredible <laughs> introduction she's now giving me a little payback there she said Good point. And I'm like, okay, Mm -hmm. that's good. That's great. And she
0: liked my frat guys thing. So I feel like we're we're doing
1: awesome. We both did good with Mo. That's incredible. Hey, (laughs) Mo, you can come back sometime. (laughs) I would
2: love to. Please invite me back. It was
1: a great pleasure. Um, Mo, Ryan, who is awesome and writes for Variety, and anybody who doesn't subscribe to Variety is an idiot to begin with. But if you don't subscribe to Variety and... Don't immediately go and look at Mo the first time you pick it up or the first time you go online and click in that URL. You're part- you're like beyond an idiot. You're a moron. I will personally pummel you across the head and face and neck. Right, right. Okay, we got to go out. This we- is
2: all very reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> keep
1: going. <laughs> uh, Mo Ryan, thank you very much for being on the show. Will, um, it's time for us to go. I'm John Heilman and you're who again? I believe I'm told I'm Will Lee. And this is the end of the Culture Caucus. We will see you back here again the next time. Will again remind everybody where they can find this podcast. Of course, you can find us on bloombergpolitics.com. You also subscribe to us on iTunes
0: and SoundCloud. Please. While you're on iTunes, give us a nice review, and uh, it helps people find the show, and it lets us see uh, all the nice things you said about us, like Mo Ryan did. Which
1: apparently is really important to us. Okay, bye-bye and bye-bonds.
0: Bye.